You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Okay, so we've got three characters again tonight. One that stands out in a most amazing way, and he's sort of surrounded by bookends on either side. So we've got John of Damascus, we've got Anselm of Canterbury, and then we have Peter Abelard. Okay, so two bookends with a a center point there in... in, uh, Anselm. And then I also asked you to read the Didache. So, do you remember that? How many of you were able to do that? Some? Okay. We'll take a few minutes when we get to that part to let you just review it again. And those of you who didn't get it read, you can kind of speed read through it a little bit so you know what we're talking about. So, anyway, let's talk about John of Damascus. John of Damascus, 7th and 8th century. Kind of the last significant personage in the Eastern Church. What do we know? What do we learn about John? Where was he from? He was born in Damascus. There we go. Okay, good. Became a monk. Yes? Anything else? Would you say he was an earnest man seeking after Christ? Do you give that sort of evidence? Played a major role in the icon. Yes, he did. Played a major role in the controversy over icons. That's exactly correct, and we will talk about that for sure. So, what do you think, though? Did he? Would you characterize him as an earnest man for Christ? Earnest is not the same as as um, you know making all the right choices. But did it seem as though his heart's desire was to follow Christ, to worship Christ? Yes, I think so. I think so. So, we want to be careful. We can certainly um, critique him, and we will, but we also don't want to disparage him um, because you may have an apartment next to him in heaven. You don't know. You don't know. If he's trusting in Christ and Christ alone, then yeah, he'll be there. He will be there. Okay. So, interesting pointing out here in uh, the outcome of the Fifth Ecumenical Council at Constantinople in 553. See that on page 117 on the bottom? Two outcomes of the council were these. The condemnation of Origen in his teaching. Why is that sort of ironic? Uh, Yes, we'll get to the icons uh, for sure. But where was John from? What Western or Eastern church? Eastern Church, who was the, the brain trust of the Eastern Church? Origin. Origin. And so we have a council in, in Constantinople. Constantinople is in the east or the west? 
It's in the east, Rome in the west, Constantinople in the east. Constantinople stands on the western shore of, of Turkey, near the Black Sea. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that this ecumenical council condemns as heretical the teaching that had the most profound influence on their theology. Just sort of an interesting turn of events, I think. Okay. All right. And the other significant event coming out of that fifth council there at Constantinople concerned the controversy over Chalcedon and in particular, which we haven't got to yet, so kind of have to roll with me a little bit on this, but it was the monophysite controversy. So what was the monophysite controversy? And if you want some help, look ahead in your syllabus to page 16 and you'll see it laid out for you. Okay, monophysite comes from two Greek words compounded to speak of one nature. Position taught that at the incarnation, the Christ at the incarnation, in the incarnation, had only one nature, not two, which is the which is the the configuration of Chalcedon, which we haven't gotten to yet, but is that is the boundaries of orthodoxy, the two natures of Christ. And so they said one nature. The nature of God became flesh and man, thus God was born, God suffered, God was crucified, God died. They said that Christ's human nature was lost in the divinity, and this is an interesting quote, as a drop of honey which falls into the sea dissolves into it. It's very poetic. Right? So it was that, that idea of the blending of the divine and human nature into this single divine slash human nature. Okay? So you see that there, right? Page 118. Another attempt to placate the monophysites was to suggest that Jesus had not one nature, but one will. The decision-making capability of a person, that will was divine. This view was called monothelitism. You kind of get the idea here that they're slicing and dicing and trying to, and let's just grant them the, uh, the, the, the earnest desire, we'll grant them that, uh, to try to figure out exactly what does the incarnation, what, what happened in the incarnation. Right? So the monophysite position is not correct. It is not correct, and it was declared a heresy there in the Fifth Council in Constantinople. Okay. So, but John Damascus is best known for his major role, verse one, or page 119. A major role he played in the controversy over icons. So let's talk about icons. What is an icon? Let's begin with that. What is an icon? What does the author tell you an icon is? Images and paintings. Images and paintings of whom? Christ and the saints. Okay. So let's just follow along there. Uh, again, let's, let's grant them the benefit of the doubt that they're earnest in this. So, so it, it is... Paintings and 
and uh, statues or images of Christ and the saints for the purpose of what? Okay, yeah, so let's, let's hang off on the critique of it, because we are going to critique it for sure, but its purpose, its stated purpose, its stated role was to do, um, to draw the believer into the worship of God. That was its stated purpose, to draw the believer into a right worship of God. They made a a differentiation between veneration and worship. Okay? Those of you who have Roman Catholic in your background, you're probably hearing familiar terminology, perhaps. What is the idea of veneration? How does veneration differ from worship? Yes, that's right. To venerate is to have just a great respect, great honor, Pay, pay great respect. Go ahead. To emulate as well. Could be. Could be. Okay. Worship is is something different. Worship is reserved for whom alone? For God Himself. Okay. And they they would all agree to that statement. Okay. Never to be worshipped. You see it here at the end of the first. Full paragraph on 119. The icons were not idols. They're very clear about this. They are not idols, at least in their opinion. They are never to be worshipped, but rather to be an aid in worship. So these are their stated purposes. Unfortunately, that's not always understood by the ordinary, everyday Eastern Christian. Veneration quickly can stray into worship. And then there's all kinds of problems, for sure. But just the idea of of an image, painted image or statuary, whatever, of Christ, is that bothersome to you? Does it bother you? Yeah? Why? What what bothers you about it? Okay. Second commandment? People put uh, pictures of Christ, so-called pictures of Christ. Right? People hang stylized pictures. Yeah, sure. People hang them on their walls, yes. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting point, isn't it? We don't know what he looked like. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's true. So do you think it's forbidden by the second commandment? Do you think idols are, no, idols, idols are clearly forbidden. Do you think um, icons are clearly forbidden by the second commandment? I would say no. Not clearly forbidden. Idols are. Idols are. Yes. But we had someone that we found very important and influential. Uh-huh. Say that's quite idolatry. 
Kind of feels like you got your toes over the edge, huh? Yeah. Yes. 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 It's very. It's a line that is blurry and easily crossed, for sure. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Because I was going to. <laughs> so let me ask you a question then. Is it okay for a cinematic depiction of Christ? Is that a violation of the second commandment? Is that an idol? Is that an icon? I wonder how that guy got in the character. <laughs> Depends whether you're iconoclast or not, which iconoclast means, by the way, what? Idol smasher? Means idol smasher, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not looking to settle this. I'm only looking to like throw rocks in the pond and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. He said no flannel graphs in children's Sunday school, right? That's a. That'll preach. I'll definitely give you that. That would preach. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, that would get a response. Right? Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Okay, so let's just think about a few things. And again, I don't want to get into a complete fistfight over it, but you know, so a couple, couple of blows would be all right. Um, so I just, see somebody crap out their spleen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's a very valid observation. So, interesting things, okay? So, nowhere in the New Testament is, is Jesus ever described in his humanity, other than he is completely human, right? So, there's, there's no description. You can't imagine, there's no way to imagine his face, his, you know, body type, anything. It's, it's not given at all. We did get ethnicity and beard. Right. So. <laughs> You can imagine you don't probably look like Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> that is a classic depiction. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that'll be an interesting one too. So, yeah, I think so. I think he did. So, no, no, you know, no depiction of Jesus or the apostles. No physical descriptions at all. The Old Testament has many physical descriptions. David, um, I don't know, a lot, I, there are others. Other people, Samson, so forth. There, there, it doesn't seem to be as, as uh, hesitant at all to make physical descriptions of Old Testament saints. But when you get to the New Testament, there's nothing there. Says nothing. Ordinary man. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that's just, you know, kind of interesting to observe. Certainly to make an an image of the invisible God would clearly steer one immediately into violation of the second commandment and idolatry. Incarn 
when the second person of the Trinity took to himself human flesh and tabernacled among us, he was a man. And that was never in dispute among his contemporaries. All, all of the disciples and so on, no one ever said, you know, I think he's God. I don't think he's a man. I think he's God. That was never in dispute. Indeed. Indeed. So what was the initial tussles, if you remember back to, to um, the Trinitarian disputes, it was over the deity of Christ. Now we're moving forward in time historically, and now it's over not that he wasn't a man, that's docetism, but it was how did this happen? What happened? That kind of thing. So uh, are icons useful? Boy, I don't know. Oh, hold on, I'll get you. I think I think Jeff's insight is is very uh, very good, very important to to recognize that we see God in His Word, and the more time we spend in His Word, there our hearts are drawn upward in true worship and veneration. And so the idea of a physical something we can see to stimulate worship. Even if it were possible, it would seem to me the dangers involved outweigh the benefits. Potential, actual dangers outweigh the potential benefits. And so... Yes. Right? Oh, yeah. Uh huh? Yeah, it's, a, it's the idea that worship happens when the brain turns off. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. What about the image of a cross? Ah, what about the image of a cross? Uh huh. Right. There are some churches that are against that. Ah, indeed. I'm sure that's true. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the Protestant tradition has been the rejection of icons. Go ahead. At the time, and that's what, what your teacher is teaching. Sure. So it helps to yeah. lock that in. Well, okay. So here's an interesting, another data point. Um, within... Historically conservative Protestant denominations, you will find stained glass windows in which pictures of biblical scenes are portrayed in stained glass and substantively as an aid for those who were either illiterate at the time or children or whatever to kind of remind them of Bible stories. Is that a is that an icon? Is that an idol? Is that forbidden by the second commandment? It's just, you know, there's wobble in some of this. I mean, I'm not... Right? Well, no, because we only venerate it. Yep. And John of Damascus would not have denied that statement. 
he would not have contended that, or contended against that statement. Absolutely. High ceilings to raise one's eyes up to the Almighty. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Take a look at the architecture of Europe. It's designed, I mean, it's beautiful <laughs> as opposed to the architecture of. <laughs> I mean. Yes, they they are. They're they're mausoleums, but they were full a lot longer than we've been full. So again, be careful with casting stones. They were full for centuries. So we're not going to resolve it, and I think there's obviously you know some room for some some wiggle and some differences of opinion. Go ahead. We'll, we'll go one more, and then we're going to move on. Well, the human heart is a is an idol factory. So we can turn them out really fast. Um, I don't remember where it is in the Old Testament, but uh, I think it was Josiah, good King Josiah, who destroyed the uh, serpent on the pole because it had become an idol centuries later after it was originally um, commanded to be made by God. So, yeah. Okay. So maybe let's just close this out in this way because we're kind of closing out the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, and it's on page 121. Maybe you just pick up the, his, his statement here at the end of page 120. For the honor paid to the image passes on to its original, and he who reveres the image reveres in it the person represented. As the culmination of Eastern Orthodox or Byzantine theology, and he was the major theological influence in reestablishing the use of icons, which remain a vital aspect of Orthodox worship to this day. To this day, their, their method of worship is frozen in time, in that way, as opposed to the far more free-spirited approach amongst many of the non-denominational evangelicals. Uh, yeah, I think, I think he probably would. I think he probably would, Yeah. And I just feel compelled to make one more editorial statement here. I was just—I've been just thinking about this. Uh, Vladimir, Vladimir Putin gave a speech last week. I don't know if any of you guys followed any of that, but but in that speech he called out the debauchery of the West and all of our sexual ridiculousness that's going on, and upheld the orthodoxy of the Eastern Church. I'm not making any comment about the state of the soul of Vladimir Putin, but I would just tell you this, that Russian Orthodox has maintained the, the, at least the external symbols of Orthodoxy that would stretch back a thousand years. And they have no place for the, the woke ideology that has infected the evangelical church in America. So it's just kind of an interesting observation in all of that, that it that it is a cocoon that they live within. Are there believers amongst the Orthodox? I think there probably very much are. Is it a church in which has the gospel? I would say it does. Is it encrusted in a lot of barnacles? 
that have to be pried away? Yes. Yes, I think so. I think so. So. Uh, I would not because the Catholic Church placed an anathema on the gospel. Yeah. Okay. Let's move from John. We had fun with him. Let's move to the to the highlight. So, so this is the this is the highlight of the of the twelfth century. All right, Anselm of Canterbury. So, what do we know about Anselm? He didn't want the job. That is a true. He got he. They drug him into that position, kicking stream. Remember, it said they had to wrap his fingers around the the um, the staff, the symbol of of regal authority. Yes, he he did not want that position. What did he want to do? What was what was the desire of Anselm's heart? He wanted to be a monk from early age. He just wanted to be left alone to worship God. And providence overtook him and thrust him into the limelight. That's exactly right. By this time, the world has changed. So we will talk more about this when we get there historically. But but now we're to the place where the Pope coronates the king. We have the formation of the Holy Roman Empire with Charlemagne in 800. So this is a different world than than we've been previously speaking of. On page, uh, let's see, page 124, he introduces the idea of scholastic theology, which dominated for 500 years. Let that sink in, 500 years. We're, we're you know, we've, we've been around half that. We've been around for half of that. So, so what was scholastic theology or scholasticism? How can Christianity be shown to make sense? That's right. Using philosophical methodology. Okay? Arguing not from the scriptures, but from human reason. To, to, not that they disputed the scriptures, but to prove out the truthfulness of what the scriptures present. Right? So, verse one, uh, page 125 at the top, he was trying to strengthen the Christian belief, which is derived from Scripture, by adding the evidence of reason to it. So seeking to, to bolster Christian faith by the addition of reason, evidence. Right? Josh McDowell, evidence demands a verdict. Has a little bit of a scholastic flavor to it. Okay, so notice on page uh, his his reasoning, page one twenty five, very important statement. The bottom of that first paragraph, in Anselm's thinking, reason or logic is the God given link between our thoughts and His thoughts. Okay, above it, now right after the the original title of his um, of his writing. I do not seek to understand in order to believe, but I believe in order that I may understand. How does that strike you? 
I do not seek to understand in order to believe, but I believe in order that I may understand. Yeah, it reminds me of Jesus' words in John seven seventeen. Where he says, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. If anyone is willing to do God's will, he will know of my teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak from myself. So, so does belief precede Understanding. Proverbs says, Fear of the Lord speaking knowledge. Seems as though it does, doesn't it? Yeah. So, notice it's the word understanding. So, it's not that there's a, a, a vacuum of knowledge, there is some basic level of knowledge that has to be, um, thank you, has to be understood and communicated. But the kind of, um, Endeavors that we're engaging in tonight are not essential for faith. And we understand as we believe. The incarnation, for example. Okay? Anselm is also known for formulating the ontological argument. Okay, so those of you who like the classical um, proofs for the existence of God. You can thank Anselm for the ontological argument. Does anybody want to take a stab at, at summarizing the ontological argument quickly? Knowledge is impossible without God. Say it again. Knowledge is impossible without God. Uh, no. Knowledge is impossible without God. I'm not sure which one that is. The ontological argument basically says that um, existence is greater than non-existence. And therefore, if the fact that you can postulate a God, he has to exist, because if he didn't exist, then there could be a, something greater than him that did. It's kind of the way it goes. Okay. I never found it particularly persuasive, but it's been used for 500 years, more than 500 years. Okay. So the ontological argument. Then his famous work... Per Deus Homo, Why Did God Become Man? We're on page 126. And from it, he developed a theory of the atonement. Okay? And what was that, what was that theory? The prevailing theory up to that time was the ransom theory. Remember we talked about this sometime back? That it was a ransom paid to Satan to release us, okay? And there is ransom language in atonement passages, okay? It's just not the Satan. Um, but that was the prevailing theological notion of the time. So Anselm introduced what was called the satisfaction theory. The satisfaction theory. Do you remember this? It's on page 126. Oh. Let's see. We pick it up in the middle there. In the same way, God is king. Our sin dishonors him, and he demands satisfaction. Third, uh, let's see, one, two, three, fourth paragraph, bottom, 
In the death of Jesus, satisfaction was made. So in Anselm's theory, Jesus was not punished for our sins. Rather, he provided the reparation plus. He restored God's honor. This, this was developed out of a, a feudal society. Feudalism. There's a lord, king. King owns all the land. He has lords under him. They manage it. And under, you know, underlings down to serfs who just work the land. That's a feudal system that dominated Europe for centuries. And so the idea that, that you offended the honor of the king, his honor had to be restored. That was the prevailing political philosophy. And so Anselm incorporated it into his theology and explaining exactly why did Jesus die? What did his death accomplish? And he taught this idea that what it did... Um, was restore God's honor. So, question for you. Has our sin dishonored God? Is there any value, any truth to Anselm's thinking? I think so. I think so. I think God has been dishonored by our sin. We owe him allegiance. We owe him worship. He's our creator, for sure. It's just not comprehensive enough. It's not comprehensive enough. But it was the prevailing theory, and it is still thought by some to explain the atonement today. All right, one more. We'll flip over to the black sheep of the family here. Mr. Peter Abelard. Okay, what do we know about this character? The first guy with the last name. That's true. There you go. And, a, and his dates are known. Why are his dates known? Anybody know? An autobiography. He was very much concerned with how he was perceived. Yes. Okay. He's described as a theological free spirit. Uh, argumentative. Brilliant. Caustic. All of those things. Had a love affair with Heloise. Okay. Who was Heloise? A teenage girl who was his student. Okay. He was tutoring her. Okay. What happened? Yeah. Two, two uncles castrated him over it. Yep. That's the truth of it. He went off to a monastery, she went off to a convent, and that was it. No more. No more offspring of Peter Abelard. They were buried together. Yes. I've never read his thing, and it sounds like it's kind of steamy, so I'm not sure I'd want to, honestly. But uh, evidently, it was a expression of this man's love for her. I think he really did love her. So, okay, so that's all kind of in the background running there. But, but what, why did Peter Aberlard make it into this book? Let's just, just ask that question. Because of Anselm, I don't think we have any gigantic critiques other than we would say that, that the satisfaction theory is not satisfactory to fully answer the reason of the atonement. But, but, um, but Peter Abelard, what was his theological contribution? Why is his name remembered? 
Yeah. Have you ever heard that? Has anyone ever tried that one on you? If salvation is a gift of God, why is there any payment required for it? Okay. So what was Abelard's theory of the atonement, if I can say it that way? It's all about love. Yep, the love of God. That's right. Uh-huh. What did Jesus accomplish, according to him? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> uh, that would be an implication of it, yes. That's right. Uh-huh. Right? So... His theory is called the moral influence theory. The moral influence theory. And basically what it says is that that Christ showed God's love for you by sending his son to die in your place. That was a demonstration of his love for you. And when you begin to understand the depth of the love of God for you, you will reform your wretched heart and begin to live uh, an upright and moral life. Does that sound kosher to you? Is that okay? Say that? It's a modern praise song. Yeah, I mean, an obvious critique of that is, is if, in what way does the death of Christ demonstrate God's love in such a fashion? Why couldn't some other mechanism have been? Right? So that's a serious problem. Secondly, it doesn't change our nature. It changes our behavior, but our nature remains unchanged. So for Abelard, it wasn't a problem because he denied original sin. But if you understand the scriptures to teach that we all fell in Adam, then we've got a serious problem that we can't do anything about because we inherited it. Right? So notice on page 131, he quoted John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. Is the love of God a compelling reason to turn to Christ in faith? What do you think? Is it a compelling reason? I didn't say it's the sufficient reason. I just asked you if it was a compelling reason. I think absolutely it is. And I would say a gospel presentation that does not include the love of God is an inadequate gospel presentation. Love of God is a very powerful concept to begin to wrestle with. Okay? It just doesn't deal with our fundamental deep-down problem. Y yes, yes. This is the theory that underpins all of liberal Protestant theology. This is it. Okay? He, he would have fit in. Mm -hmm. well, I'm not sure that he would have argued that, that it was because we were so lovely. That He's missing the whole point that it's the praise of the glory of God's grace. Yeah? It's to the praise of the glory of, of his grace. Interesting that for 1,500, well, I'd be careful how I say that, for a 1,000 years, the understanding of the atonement was inadequate. And yet, unless we're somehow willing to postulate 
that for a thousand years, no one ever got saved. It says to me that you can be saved with an inadequate understanding of the atonement because you are not saved by your right theology. You are saved by the saving work of Christ in whom you trust. That is how you're saved. So, is that a license to just go around in ignorance and it doesn't matter, you know? Of course not. Of course not. But it is, it is fascinating. John 6.65. Right. And you can, you can thank Luther for the recovery of those truths. And we will when we get there. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. In the, in the movement of time, in the providence of God, so, you know, the, the movable type press is a 15th century invention. Yes, but, but, it, but it made it begin to be available. Prior to this, we're, we're talking hand copies that take months, yea, generation, or years to produce at a, a tremendously expensive price. So yes, there was a limited movement. It is the Dark Ages, after the fall of Rome in 476, up until 1100-ish, we have the period of the Dark Ages, when the, when the Germanic tribes swept across Europe, they destroyed libraries, burned them. <laughs> sure, cuddling or coddling, yeah. Sure, sure. Uh huh. Could could be. I don't. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to speak with any kind of. Sure. So, yeah, is Peter is Peter Abelard in heaven? I felt a lot stronger about Anselm than I did about him. You know, like. I wouldn't want to be handcuffed to him in the rapture. Let's put it that way. So, but does he make the list of the 40 influential? Yeah, he was influential. Maybe all in a negative kind of way. And, and if you see and understand the moral influence theory is what underpins modern liberal theology, which has led millions to hell, then yeah, I guess he is way up there on the list of rogues gallery. huh? Yeah. Because he failed to deal with the fundamental problem we have, which is that we sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. And understanding that difference is night and day. Night and day. Okay, great. Good job, gentlemen. All right, so we'll just take a break here. But for next week, we're looking at uh, the angelic doctor Aquinas, who provides the intellectual lift for the Western church. So we've got Aquinas, and then Julian of Norwich, a monastic mystic. You'll love that one. Okay, all you, all you mystics. And then... A looter, huh? The beer-drinking monk from Germany. Yeah, Martin Luther. Okay, so that's for next time. Okay, so we're in the syllabus, page 14. We went over this last uh, week. 
uh, towards the end. So I'm not going to, I don't chew my cabbage twice, so I don't want to go over it a second time. But um, I will I will take you to page 15 in the box where it says, try this sometime. Read the didache. So you'll remember that the didache was for a time period. Here it is. It was um, considered by some as a possible inclusion into the New Testament canon. Okay? And um, it didn't make the cut, and appropriately so, but I want you, as, as, as we've contended here, that the only true test of canonicity is the testimony of God the Holy Spirit to the authority of his own word. That is the only true test. So we do not make a leap, a blind leap into the dark. So there is certainly a, a, um, an abundance of evidence and things like that, but we don't believe because of the evidence. The evidence are there because it's true. But just like nobody comes to faith in Christ by reasoning it out, by examining other religious options, and then concluding that Christianity is the best option available, therefore... I'm going to trust Christ and become a Christian. That is not true. C.S. Lewis, uh, even though he contended it was, okay, he now knows the truth. Um, so that's not how he was saved, even though he thought that was true. So we are, we are saved when the Spirit of God regenerates us and opens our eyes, changes our desires from being repulsed by Christ to being attracted to him in his glory and his beauty. And we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. So that's how do we know that the 27 books of the New Testament are all belong in the New Testament? It's by the testimony of the Spirit of God to our hearts, to that reality. That is the only true and certain way to know. And so I propose this test for you to just do a kind of a little fun little exercise to prove it to yourself. So on page, uh, what page is it in your syllabus? It's like... 48. So on page 48, I've reproduced for you a translation of the didache. So the didache, and uh, that comes from the Greek word means teaching. Okay, that's what it means. And uh, it is the oldest surviving handbook of church discipline. It was discovered in the library at Constantinople in AD 1875. So it, it was hidden for 1,600 years before it was discovered. They're deep in the bowels of the library of Constantinople. It's just, I can't help it. It reminds me of the Lord of the Rings where, where he goes and he's digging through the ancient scrolls looking for information. It's that kind of an idea. I mean, think about it. For 1,600 years, it sat in the, in the stacks of the library in Constantinople until it was finally discovered. It was an ancient manuscript. So it dates from the middle 2nd century, maybe as early as 8120. If that's true, if it does date from 8120, then it is only 25 years beyond the book of Revelation, making it the oldest extant non-scriptural document we have. It's divided into two parts. 
Part one concerns doctrinal teaching given to Christians based on a contrast between the way of life and the way of death. And part two about various church practices, prayer, fasting, baptism, the Lord's Supper, church leadership, and how to handle visiting prophets. So, again, it's, uh, it's not that long a read. We don't have time to... I've done this before and I've had people just read it in class, but we just don't flat have time. So we're just going to have to dive into this. And uh, so give me some feedback. Those of you who have had a chance to read it, think about it. Maybe you made some marks in the margin or something. I mean, what do you think? What stands out to you from this? Say it again. Plagiarism. Plagiarism. Okay, explain your comment. Okay. All right. So it's saturated in, in scriptural teaching and citation. Yes? Good? Yep. Yes. Yes. No authority. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly correct. You are right on the money, right? The authority lies in the Word of God. So, so did the church create this canon, or did the canon create the church? Remember, we said this last time, the answer to that question is the difference between Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy. It is the canon that creates the church. Because the, the canon is possessed of its own divine authority in the moment the, the writer put his pen down. From that moment forward, it, it possesses all the authority it will ever have. The recognition of it, the spread of it, that took time. Centuries even, potentially. Okay? So yes, you're on the money. Uh, I... Uh... <coughs> Okay, good. Thank you. Yes. So there were a lot of good ideas, and there's a lot of ideas you go, really? All right, let's look at a couple of them. You, you got an example for us? Uh, chapter 9. Chapter nine. Uh, oh, yeah, there it is, concerning the Eucharist. Okay. All right. So now concerning the Eucharist, give thanks this way, first concerning the cup. So a prescribed prayer, then concerning the bread, a prescribed prayer. Let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist unless they have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For concerning this also the Lord has said, Give not that which is holy to the dogs. Okay? Even as the broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let the church be gathered from one end of the earth to your kingdom. So, yeah, interesting. Ah, wasn't that interesting? Yes, the prescription for baptism. So the, it has to be running water. That's what living water means. Yes. And evidently, the temperature of the water is important. Okay. Do we heat our baptistry? Evidently, we don't think the temperature of the water is all that important, huh? Cold baptistry makes for short testimonies. It certainly does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I looked um, to try to understand that for a different translation of it, and, a, and an alternate translation is, um, if your labor has brought you earnings, is the idea of if you have anything through your hands. But then, yes, you shall give ransom for your sins. The idea that you have to give from your earnings, uh, and it acts as some sort of a ransom for your sins. That's a pretty bizarre idea. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, but look at the sentence before that. But whoever says, in the Spirit, give me money or something else, you shall not listen to him. But if he tells you to give money to other people who are in need, then don't judge him. But if there is stay three days, yeah, what do, false pro- or what do prophets and fish have in common? They stink after three days. Exactly. Isn't that fascinating? So how do I know a false prophet? If the guy hangs around and eats my bread and drinks my beer for three days and, and won't move on, he's a false prophet. <laughs> fascinating, huh? Very fascinating. Yes. So there is definitely a thread of a legalistic kind of approach that is running in the background here, for sure. A little bit of that sort of pharisaical approach, perhaps, yeah. Mm-hmm. Notice on uh, chapter 2, just a, just a list of gross sins that they were dealing with. I mean, they're calling them out because they're dealing with them amongst the, the converts, as it were. I mean, that is... An amazing list. It actually reads like today. <laughs> so, so you've got you've got all of that. Um, let's see. There's a couple more that just were sticking out to me. Um, so, under chapter one, it's uh, uh, four lines down. Well, let me, let me just say, first, you shall love God who made you. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. And do not do to another what you would not, done to, would, you would not want done to you. Okay? Don't do to another what you would not want them to do to you. Is that what Jesus said? That is not what Jesus said. What did Jesus say? Yes. Do to them as you would have them do to you. So this is kind of that, he's, this is flipped it in kind of just basically saying, you know, don't do bad things to people because you want them to do bad things to you. It's lost the spirit of Christ in that kind of rendering. Um, in the middle, if someone takes from you what is yours, ask it not back, for indeed you are not able. Idea, basically, the idea is you can't get it back anyway, even if you asked, so don't ask. Again, that it doesn't exactly capture the flavor of the teaching of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of running through all of this. So they're just it's off just a little along the way. Uh, let's see. That's not what it says either. Yeah, that's right. Or how about this one on fasting in the Lord's Prayer, chapter 8. Let not your fast be with the hypocrites who fast on the second and fifth day. That's Monday and Thursday of the week. Rather, fast on Wednesday and Friday. Huh? What? Let me read that again. Don't fast like the hypocrites because they fast on Monday and Thursday. Rather, fast on Wednesday and Friday instead. Really? Don't pray like the hypocrites, but rather as the Lord commanded in his gospel. And then you get down to the bottom, right? Pray this three times each day. <laughs> so it's just that interesting mix of biblical truth, 
and an attempt to apply it, and the more it gets applied, the more it becomes formulaic, which is probably instructive for us too. And just in just thinking about that thing. Okay, so let me let me um I'm I feel like throwing hand grenades tonight, so let me throw this hand grenade at you. Um do you have to have a quiet time? A quiet time. You know, a time where you read the scriptures quietly by yourself every day. Do you have to have a quiet time? No, I'm not asking do you. I'm asking if you have to. Does God command us to have Do you know where quiet times came from? It came out of the pietistic movement of the 1800s. Before that, it didn't exist. The concept didn't exist. Okay, I'm not telling you that people didn't read the scriptures. But if you travel around evangelicalism for, for very long, there is a definite sense that if you're spiritual, you have a quiet time. Uh, see, the thing is, I do. <laughs> so when you get the subject predicate reversed, it's just a little, eh, it's a little off. So, so be unbound in your conscience if you didn't read the Bible this morning. I'll pray for your sin-sick, shriveled-up soul. <laughs> Tomorrow you can get up early and do it. But yeah, that's how I raised my children. No Bible, no breakfast. They were raised that way. <laughs> what was it? That's why you're so skinny. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yep. Okay. And I'll give you one more, just interesting to me. And that is chapter 16, watchfulness for the coming of the Lord. Okay. Jake. Yep. That was what the law told him to do. I would strongly encourage it. Yeah. It's just that it's, it, it gets the wrinkle when it goes from this is really a wise thing to do to you must. When it goes to you must, then it's, it's moved out of the wisdom category and you're now a, you're binding consciences. And we don't have the authority to bind the conscience in that way. If the, we can bind the conscience where Christ binds the conscience. Where Christ leaves the conscience free, we must leave it free. So, even though I didn't leave my children's conscience free because they were under my authority and I decided to bind it. So, anyway, chapter 16, and here's the thought that occurs to me in chapter 16, okay? If it's true that this document is from about AD 120, the preterist got a real problem. Okay. Those that believe that the that the second coming happened in the and all of the signs that are spoken of here happened in the destruction of Israel in 70 AD, they got a real problem because this is 50 years later and they're still looking for it. Okay, thought just occurred to me today while I was reading that. So the next time one of your preterist friends is looking for something, just throw them chapter 16 of the Didache and say, "What do you think? What do you make of that?" Just, just asking. It's, it's very clear. They're still looking forward to the return of the Lord. So, 25 years after the close of Revelation. So, anyway, okay. Enough on that.
All right. Any further comments, questions? You're going to go home. Your wife's going to say, so what did you, what did you learn about? You don't believe what that guy said. Okay. Good, uh, good question. So there was a methodology by which um, debates were had over inclusion or exclusion. So page 40... Is it 46 in yours? Uh, hold on. 46, right? Yeah. Is this, the, is this what you're looking at? Oh, man, that's not going to show. Let's see if I can get it, make it. Well, I know what I'll do. Hold on. I just make it smaller. That's about as useful as uh, nothing at all. Um, okay, yeah, mine is old. So wh wh which one are we looking at? We're looking at books debate. Okay, we're looking at this. No, we're not looking at this. We're looking at this. Is that right? Yep, that's what you're looking at. Okay. So you can see that... For a period of time, some of these books, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to, you all have it in front of you, then you just look at it in front of you. For a period of time, there was some debate, at least among some, as to the, um, were these to be received into the canon, were these apostolic books? And so there are the tests. Is it written by an apostle or a close associate of apostle? Does it contradict anything that has been previously revealed? That's the Deuteronomy 18 kind of test. Um, and so those questions are important, but they don't in and of themselves settle it. It is only finally settled. And let me say it a different way. Its authority does not lie there. His authority lies, right? As um, E.J. Young said, its, its authority lies in the testimony of the Spirit of God who inspired it. That's, it, it, it has divine authority because it has a divine author. Well, okay, so at, at the... Um, well, the canon is, is merely, uh, the word means a, a measuring rod. But recognize that. Right. Well, let me, let me back it up and say this way. How do you know that Jesus is the Son of God? Right? Jesus loves me, this I know, before the Bible tells me so. Okay? So then the next question would be, is, well, how do you know the Bible is truthful? How do you know that? Sure, establish a probability. So are we basing our eternity on a probability? And have we really examined all possible alternatives? Not a chance. The truth is, we know that Jesus is the Christ because the Spirit of God has acted upon our heart and mind and transformed us. He has caused us to be born from above. So, so that is the only sure testimony. 
but it is not a blind leap into the dark. In other words, Jesus is a historical figure, and there's ample enough historical evidence of that. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He, he was three days in a tomb, and he rose from the dead, and he was observed by 500 witnesses. I mean, those are all, those are all uh, evidential realities. As Luke says in Acts, many convincing proofs. But ultimately, it is not because we have weight evidence and we're tipped by the evidence. Okay? Because the truth of the matter is none of us is capable of weighing the evidence. Which is, the, is, is one of my apologetical critiques of an atheist who says there is no God. And my answer is, seriously? Have you been everywhere in the universe at the same time and examined all the evidence to conclude there is no God? Well, the answer is no. Of course I haven't. Well, then you can't make that statement. That's not an evidential statement. That's a... Yes. See, I would, I would suggest that one sign of a redeemed person is their submission to the authority of the Word of God. And that a person who will not or is not in submission to the Word of God is giving evidence of an unredeemed heart. I'm not saying I can't make an equal sign and say that equals the fact that it could be just that they are trapped in sin. <laughs> but that's one of the fruit of redemption is a submission to the Word of God and an embracement of the Word of God. Because we've not, we, we are un incapable of proving it all out. We, we are taking it uh, on faith. But it has this authority. And, I, and that's what I loved what Aaron said. You read the Didache, and there's this good, helpful kinds of things in there. But it doesn't have that authority to, to bind me like the Word of God does. So, why was Luther troubled by James? I think Luther was troubled by James because he was a man of his time, focused on a single issue, and he had, he had James's message, kind of, as you spoke about last week, he kind of had it on the wrong side of, of salvation. And so, right, Abraham demonstrates his faith through his works. So, today we're not troubled by James at all. None of us are. Luther was. Called it a right strawy epistle. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure to be able to say that um, one way or another. I, I can just tell you that yeah, uh, most of those guys had no idea what Revelation was about, so they just ignored it. Sure. Right. There is evidence, and I share that with you, and it's in your notes here. There's evidence of uh, understanding and acceptance of canonicity from the moment of writing. In other words, Peter's recognizing Paul's writings. Paul is, is um, equating his writings with, with Deuteronomy and, and so forth. Uh, he uses he cites Luke, so there is that kind of contemporaneous citation which says that they knew they were writing scripture at the time they wrote it. 
Uh, and so, yeah, when they put their pen down, it had all the authority it'll ever have. It was gradually understood and, and dispersed over time. But, but when Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, churches in Galatia, the book of Galatians, it, it had authority over them. And they recognized it. So, who wrote Hebrews? That's an interesting discussion. Which Jim think wrote it? I wasn't here when he started that part. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, I could agree to that statement. It bears all the marks of divinity. And so, yes, there is a, a certain sense in which it will be beyond our ability to wrap our arms around it. Yes, for sure. Okay. But, yeah. Does that help? Okay. Good. Good. Okay. So, we're going to come back next week. We are going to close out our Christological um, controversies with Chalcedon. That's page 15 in your syllabus. So we'll look at the Council of Chalcedon and the four fences that they established around the Incarnation and say, okay, we're, we're in the same place they were 1,500 years ago. We, we've not moved a step closer to understanding than they did. So these are the fences. Inside the fence, you can be free thinking. <laughs> you just can't step outside them. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.